Welcome to All Rise, the Gonzaga Law Podcast. I'm Ryan McNeese. On today's episode, Dean Jacob H. Rooksby speaks with John Kroger. Kroger is a visiting professor at Harvard Law School. Last April, he visited Gonzaga Law and lectured on the Fourth Amendment in the age of Donald Trump, focusing on immigration and searches in public and private spaces. Kroger has had a long and distinguished career in education and public service as a U.S. Marine, federal prosecutor, law professor, Oregon Attorney General, and president of Reed College. For more information about this podcast and our guests, please visit gonzaga.edu slash law slash podcast. All right, well, my name is Jacob Brooksby. I'm Dean of the Law School and here with John Kroger, who has had a long and distinguished career in public service, currently a visiting professor at Harvard Law School. And John, I guess the first question I had for you is uh, if you could describe for us what drew you into a life of public service. Can I answer a different question? Certainly. I want to answer the question of what drew me to the law, which for me is... uh, I was a public servant before I was a lawyer, but I love the law so much, and I want to I, I want to respond that way. I, 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 I um, the two are linked for me. So when I first went to work um, in in politics on Capitol Hill, I knew I wanted to have a life that was a life of meaning and purpose that accomplished something for someone more than just me that tried to make the community stronger or better. And I knew that you can't do that in two years or three years, that that's a lifetime commitment. And so I looked around at the people who I thought had the most impactful, meaningful and interesting careers in public service. And I kept seeing lawyers. Um, I felt like people who are not lawyers in public service tended to get pigeonholed in some way. Um, You know, if they knew something about housing, they would be a housing person and they would spend 30 years in housing. And the lawyers um, had a career flexibility so that as their values changed or the problems they were concerned about changed, uh, they would would be able to reinvent their career and work on different kinds of problems. It was interesting. um, Sandy Berger, who was national security advisor to Bill Clinton and um, unfortunately, we'll go down in history as the guy who stuffed the um, records down his pants and smuggled them out of a government um, record repository. Uh, and, and sadly, that's like what his career will be remembered for. But I remember looking at Sandy at the time and, um, you know, that he had been an agriculture person and then from there had morphed to working on trade. And then because he was working on trade, was working on larger global issues and then wound up working in national security. And for me, that was an example of, um, you know, some people who've had long, long, fruitful and interesting careers in public service. So you had an opportunity to work with some big names in politics, Congressman Foley, Senator Schumer, President Bill Clinton. What were those experiences like? And you did this at a young age. So what what did that, what were your takeaways at that time? Um... Boy, that's complicated, actually. I feel like I have complicated relationships, both of those experiences and to those people. Um, Chuck Schumer was great to work for. I worked for him when he was a mid-level congressman from New York, um, so still relatively early in his career. And the thing I admired most about him, um, he is the smartest person I ever worked with 
work for in, in politics. He just has a first-rate intellect. And that was, uh, that was fascinating and exciting for me. Um, I, I feel like his analysis of problems was faster and deeper than most people were capable of doing. So I learned a lot from him. Um, Tom Foley was the exact opposite in some ways, um, in that uh, I think he was always more concerned as Speaker of the House about, about process than the particular outcome. Um, it's, it's interesting. Uh, it made me think a lot about what we expect from someone like a Speaker of the House. His main goal was to try to work with a very large, disparate body of, of Congress people representing radically different interests and find some way to harmonize all these very different views into one final answer that would be the policy that the, the Congress would adopt. And he viewed his role more as a, as a I think, a, a procedural arbiter than a, than a substantive arbiter. Um, uh, he was, I have huge respect and admiration for him. He was very inspiring to work for. Bill Clinton was a, uh, you know, I went to work for him uh, when he was an asterisk in public opinion polls running for president. And um, I would say the thing I most admired about him was uh, that you could never pry him away from a conversation. Like he, it didn't matter who it was and where it was. He wanted to talk about public policy. He wanted to talk about the country. He wanted to talk about people's lives. It could be 11 o'clock at night after 17 straight hours of campaigning and he would want to stay and keep talking with people. There was a, there was a, a connection, a desire to connect with people, make them feel heard and try to learn from them that was really profound. So you had these experiences in politics and then you go to law school. Your first job out of law school after clerking for a federal appellate judge is prosecuting. How did you know you wanted to be a prosecutor? So it was a direct response to working for President Clinton. So I was working for the president and I felt like I could not tell whether I was doing any good or not. Like that's honestly, like when you're at that level, it's hard to measure whether you're having any influence or not. It, it's, it's hard to know whether, you know, I often felt like we were working politically to maintain his popularity so that he would have enough clout to do things. But I felt like my job was more on the popularity side than the doing things side. And it often felt, didn't feel concrete enough. And, you know, I got interested in prosecuting because I'd worked on criminal justice issues when I worked for Clinton. And there was something about the very definiteness of it. Um, I really don't like violence um, in particular. And the idea that you would work on a criminal case where there's someone who's done really horrible things to other people and they will probably keep doing them unless they're stopped and it's your job to bring them to justice. That felt very real and very concrete to me. Um, and uh, then in my summer after my one L year of law school, I went to work at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Boston. And the case I got assigned to as a law clerk was a thing called the Charlestown Code of Silence Murders which was a series of murders in a, in a traditional Irish neighborhood in Boston, um, uh, killing witnesses who had observed uh, sort of an Irish-American gang commit 
all kinds of crimes. And I remember thinking maybe two days into that experience, okay, this is what I want to do with my career. Like it was, it was fascinating. I mean, the, the part of it was just the, the interest of the, of the criminal underworld. You know, there was a, a, a flower shop, Kerrigan's flower shop that I used to walk past when I was a law student. And it turns out that you could drop off a shoebox with $5,000 in cash in the name of someone and they would whack the person for $5,000 that you put in the shoebox. And Kerrigan's was the drop-off point, you know? And it just made me realize there's often like stuff going on all around you that you know nothing about. So it was, it was, it was fascinating to me. I really admired the law enforcement agents and the prosecutors I worked with. Um, uh, the prosecutor I was working with, you know, had threats from the Irish mob uh, to him and his family and sort of courageously stuck in there and prosecuted the case. And um, it, it just it seemed like very important and honorable public service. So you were in New York City yep. uh, doing a lot of this work. And you have a career of going after some hardened criminal criminals, um, mob bosses and others. How do you maintain perspective on the good of humanity doing that kind of work? Because it sounds like you saw day in, day out some pretty heinous things and were um, dealing with the legal ramifications of very bad actors and their conduct. Um, what gave you hope in that and how did you stay optimistic? I will give you a completely contradictory answer, um, which is on the one hand, um, I was never really judgmental about the people I was prosecuting. And um, most humans are a mix of good and evil. And I felt like um, in many cases you had people that were capable of some form of redemption. Um, uh, and so it's very interesting, you know, in my mafia cases, I had witnesses who are mafia hitmen who had become government witnesses, and I spent a lot of time with them. And they were not completely worthless people. They weren't. There was, there was, there was remaining values and qualities to them that, um, uh, you know, I, just, I don't think it's easy to pigeonhole people. So, so part of it is, is I often saw a mixture of good and, and bad in people, even when they had done heinous things. Um, I do think it clouded my view of human nature a little bit. It's funny, I took a leave of absence, in part because I was burning out on my job and I biked across country. Um, and I remember thinking how nice people were. Like I remember thinking about how people were really decent, like people were kind and then it just, it, it, just it, it, it made me realize that I had been spending a lot of time in the, in, in the criminal sphere where um, violence and despair and hopelessness are very common. Uh, predatory behavior is very common. Um, and uh, so th that was eye-opening for me. And part of the reason I went to be a, a law professor is because I wanted time to think about my life as a prosecutor rather than just continue to go through with it. So you were at the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District of New York at a time when I think it's safe to say... I hate to correct you, Eastern District. Eastern District. Very me. proud of yeah, the Eastern, Eastern District. Eastern District. Yeah. When 
at a time when there's some very um, famous people in that office. Yep. Um, and others, I'm just sure, in the New York yep. prosecutorial scene. Yep. Um, people like Jim Comey yep. have described the culture and the competitiveness that comes with yep. um, that kind of work. What was that like for you? Did you feel uh, that it was a team atmosphere or was, you know, he, he talks about this uh, chicken shit club and the notion that, you know, some people were trying to avoid prosecuting hard cases that they might lose because they actually yeah. wanted to have that unblemished record. Yeah. So uh, this raises the great issue only of interest to New York lawyers of the radical differences between the Southern District and Eastern District of New York. So uh, um, uh, Comey, I, I, had, I had interactions with him on one big particular case, uh, Southern District lawyer, uh, that place looked and felt very different than the Eastern District. Uh, almost everyone had gone to elite law schools. Almost everyone had spent time at large law firms. Most of their staff were going to go back to large law firms. Um, uh, it's, it's always, when I was over there, it always seemed kind of like a, like a little bit of a stuffy and arrogant place. Um, the Eastern District, uh, uh, which is Brooklyn and Queens, I loved. Um, it was a very different environment. Yes, there were people like me from Harvard Law. Uh, there were people from Rutgers Law and Brooklyn Law. And the office valued good judgment, hard work, and smart thinking and didn't think that any particular set of law schools had a monopoly on it. Um, similarly, we had people from large firms, but we had a lot of career state-level prosecutors who become federal prosecutors as well. And we had people who were going to stick around. They weren't going to go to law firms. They were career public servants. So we had, in the Eastern District, I think, very high collegiality. And we respected great prosecutors. Um, uh, we felt like we were the best lawyers on the planet and um, had very high sort of esprit de corps. And, and um, uh, there was never... I don't think there was competitiveness between people. So the idea that someone would, like you wanted to work on the biggest cases and the biggest cases are often hard to win. And, you know, um, people had a phrase that if, if you're not losing occasionally, um, that means you're not trying the difficult cases. Um, so I think our, uh, you know, I can't speak to what the Southern District is really like, but I loved the Eastern District. So you have this experience where you bike across the country, which had to be fascinating. And you were not really particularly a biker before then, right? Or a cyclist. I had to buy a, I had to buy a bicycle to do it. Yes. And you find your way to Portland, Oregon, and you were struck by its beauty and the culture. Um, can you describe what made you have this moment of realizing you wanted to change coasts effectively and change gears in your professional life? Um, Part of it, when I, when I left to bike across country, I wanted time to think about my life and my career. And um, I was working, had been working 80 hours a week for year after year, and I felt like I was burned out. I did a number of really big cases, and I, I, um, I needed a break. And I wanted to think about my life, and you can't do that often unless you take a break from it. So for me, it was really an opportunity to think about what I wanted to do. And I decided as I went on that trip that I was not going to continue to be a prosecutor. 
um, that I wanted to teach in part because I wanted time to think about and understand the ethical implications of my life as a plot, as a prosecutor. Um, and my bike trip ended in Portland and Portland is paradise on earth. Um, I love Portland, Oregon, uh, and fell in love with it. Um, uh, at the time, um, uh, it sounds kind of hokey, but, uh, it was way, so this is, you know, turn of the century. It sounds so funny, but <laughs> it was the turn of the century. Uh, Today, like bike-friendly cities are very normal, but at the time, Portland was way ahead of its time. So I just remember thinking how un how unusual it was there were bikes everywhere and bike trails and bike paths. And uh, I thought as a someone who was in love with my bicycle at the time, that was cool. Loved the um, the, the the natural beauty. I'm, I'm an outdoors person, and and um, uh, Portland itself, um, Portland right now is feels very different. It feels um, the homelessness problem has gotten very severe. Uh, the heroin and opiate addiction problem is very severe. Um, at the time, I just remember it, it feeling very pristine and beautiful. It seemed like a place that understood good government. Um, so it was just that uh, I felt lucky that at the precise moment I was thinking about not being a prosecutor and being a law professor, there was an opening at Lewis and Clark Law School in Portland where I wanted to be. And we saw today, we heard your lecture on the Fourth Amendment in the age of Trump, and I think that gave people at Gonzaga Law School an understanding of your passion for the law and also your ability to teach uh, without PowerPoint, by the way. Uh, very impressive. So it seems that you really enjoyed that position, but then you were also drawn back into public service uh, to be attorney general, to run for attorney general of the state of Oregon. Um, can you describe for us briefly what you liked about that position and maybe where there was any disillusionment or things that you didn't see coming as you were running for the job? So I've always gone back and forth between public service and teaching. And um, I love both and I believe in both. And I'd like to do both at the same time. So even when I was attorney general, I was still teaching law at Lewis and Clark. When I was a prosecutor in New York, I was teaching at Yale uh, part-time. So. Uh, for me, that comes very naturally. Um, and for me, they're both about the same thing, which is you want to try to make a world, the world a better place. And part of that is, is through government. And part of that is through trying to help educate the next generation to hopefully do a better job than our generation is doing um, currently. And so for me, they seem like two sides of the same basic ethical commitment to try to make the world a better place. Um, I liked being attorney general a lot. Um, I liked the law part of it more than the politics part of it. Um, it's interesting. I, um, uh, I got a chance to do some things that I think were of lasting value to Oregon, particularly in, in the environmental field. Um, and so I think there was a, a, a significant legacy there that, that matters. And then from a personal perspective, I got to argue twice in front of the U.S. Supreme Court, which um, for me was uh, something I'd always longed to do and was a great honor and tons of fun um, as a practicing lawyer. Uh, but politics was not going to be my calling. That's what I realized from my experience. So I have two final questions for you involving higher education, where you've spent a many number of years in your career and what you did next after Attorney General, you were president of Reed College, just stepped down in the uh, past summer, July or June 2018. Um, 
Can you describe for us what do you see as sort of the biggest challenges confronting higher education today? You were at a private liberal arts college, but if you could just speak broadly about how is higher ed different now than it was maybe when you were a student and what are the challenges uh, that institutions are facing? Overwhelmingly, the biggest challenge is cost. Um, you cannot provide great education um, cheaply. It's very hard to do. And so great education is expensive. Um, and that's created huge problems, basically. Um, at the undergraduate level, um, a lot of the elite institutions cannot survive unless half of their students come from extraordinarily wealthy families and can pay tuition, room, and board. And so um, particularly private higher education, elite higher education today is uh, reinforcing inequality rather than challenging it. And I think that is, is a problem. And legal education, uh, uh, the loans that students have to take um, have gotten to the point where careers in public service are going to be very hard for students to pursue. Uh, and almost impossible to pursue, in many cases, right out of law school. And so from a, from a societal point of view, I believe legal education is the best foundation for public service in a lot of different contexts. And I'm deeply worried that we're going to lose the value and the importance of lawyers as public servants because students feel that they um, have no option but to, to, to go into the private sector because of their loans. So, um, you know, the answers to that are not simple. You know, that we're in the middle of a presidential campaign and the new flavor of the week is free education. Um, there's no such thing as free education. There's publicly financed education. Um, uh, but the challenge there is, is uh, uh, if you have public education and you don't control costs, not that you know, it's going to be almost unaffordable for us as a society. So I think we have, we have real challenges um, to try to make great education less expensive and then to find a way that it becomes a way to, to produce greater equality instead of furthering inequality. So final question, and I know you're a believer in the value of a legal education and how lawyers can change the world. Why should someone go to law school today? Um, I believe it is the very best way to prepare, prepare for a life where you're committed to social change. For me, that is, like, there are lovely things about it. It is um, intellectually an incredibly rewarding field, um, and I, I love the history and theory of law. It's the, it's the history and theory of how human beings try to get along together, and it's a very rich field. And certainly you can uh, write, uh, make a good living, take care of your family from a purely pragmatic point of view. But for me, the great reason is that law structures what kind of a society we have. And if you care about the direction of our society, law remains preeminently the, the most important field for public servants. And if you want to make the world a better place, this is the kind of education I think you should get. John Kroger, a lawyer who's dedicated his life and work to public service. Thank you for coming and speaking with us at Gonzaga Law School. Pleasure. Pleasure.